Well, I started a series last week called Home. We looked at the life of Abraham a little bit. We looked at what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 11, how Abraham left what he had known as home to follow the voice of God and find what we could say is his true, his better home, a a city whose, whose architect and designer, the one who arranges humanity, civilization in that city is God himself. Abraham went looking for his true home. And so I asked you to send me emails or texts. What is home to you? I'm going to continue to invite you to do that during the series. If, as we ponder home longer, if 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 you want to put to words what home means, I would love to to get it. I'll I'll try to read them as a part of the sermon series where they fit. Or I've also noticed that a lot of songs sing of our desire to be home, to know home. So. If there's a song that's been uniquely helpful for you, I'd love to hear it. But here are a few things that people sent me this week. Home for me is the place where I remember who I am. It's where I can be myself completely and where I go to get refocused on what really matters. Someone else said, home is where I can let my guard down and be myself. I like this. Home is where I can wear my old clothes and be comfortable. That's home. Just creative, our church. Home is the place where you instinctively know how to turn on the shower. Like my home shower is how I default to turning on all showers, and I'm frankly a little annoyed to learn that it's rarely correct. But I also think that home is the only place that is lovelier than the greatest vacation, and the only place that is a little bit comforting when the quote-unquote bad thing happens. I know that some place is my home if I can be having a great time somewhere else, and I still feel relieved to come home. Home is kind of a unique combination of comforting, lovely, and familiar. And, and, I, and, 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 and the Bible really does lead our desire. We were made for home. We long for home. And we get these pictures, these metaphors, these illustrations or analogies that maybe tap into our longing. Some of us know we haven't experienced that. Or maybe I think many of us, maybe all of us, could say that sometimes things come along. Circumstances occur, maybe a pandemic, and then all the ripple effects of that, that make the place that you thought was home feel a lot less like home. And can me else say, that's true for me, that, that, that what used to feel like home, or the people that used to feel like home in the last 16 months, there's things that have happened, it doesn't feel as much like home. And I was thinking, we were on vacation a couple weeks ago, and I, I, I wasn't trying to think about, but I love what I get to do, and I love to preach Jesus. And I was thinking a lot about this home series, and I would just get little, I think the Holy Spirit would just bring to mind things that made me feel like home or made me feel like home wasn't as home as I thought it was. And I remembered back when I was probably about in high school, when I, when I was 11 years old, most of you know my dad passed away. And, my, my two sisters are older. One sister was there for a year, but she left. And so my mom, to try to help our family adjust to a new, a new normal, a new home, my mom bought us a dog, a, a cute little miniature schnauzer named Rookie. I love Rookie. He was my dog. He protected I mean, he wasn't very big. He couldn't hurt anybody, but he would protect me, and he'd get real excited to see me. But, of course, when you leave town, when you go on vacation, you need somebody to watch your pet. Those of you who have a pet know this. And so my best friend, Matt Beerline and his family, they would watch my dog, Rookie. Matt's mom, who I referred to as Mrs. Beerline, she passed away a few years ago, but Matt's mom was, was just this, this, this 
joyful, compassionate, caring soul. And Rookie loved her. And through the years, as the beer lines would watch Rookie more and more, I would begin to get very jealous. Because my dog would get more excited to see Mrs. Beerline than see me. And I remember one year, I was probably in high school, it probably been many years, but we, we came home from vacation and I was so excited to go get my dog and bring him home so that he could be, so home could be home. And I remember Rookie whimpering as we left the Beerline's house because he didn't want to go back to our house, he wanted to stay there. And I remember feeling how disorienting that my own dog would rather be there than with me. What's going on? What feels like home doesn't feel like home. I mean, it's a somewhat silly example, but you know what I'm talking about. Maybe that gets your mind thinking. Many of us have had that experience relationally in the last 16 months. And for some of us, I mean, life has just been hard. And it's been a long time since we've felt home. One of you wrote this to me this week. I don't know if I've ever really felt at home. I wonder if I will know that feeling at some point. It must be amazing to feel home. I don't have a song for you, but if I did, maybe it would go a little something like this. I've been here for years. I know the town and all the back roads. I've written my address and all the thank yous, but I'm still not at home. I've brought my babies here and rocked them to sleep many a night, kissed their tiny, precious cheeks, yet something still isn't right. Signed many papers, been handed the keys, many a Christmas, but still it's not home to me. Home must be a place where peace surrounds. Home must be somewhere love is always found. I hope for a day to open the door And my sense of not belonging is forgotten forevermore. I've read and reread that probably about 10 times this week as I've prepared for the message. And I think it pulls on my heart strings every time I read it. It makes me sad. It makes me grieve. But there's also a note of hope in there, right? That there, there is maybe this place where we all will feel at home. Today's text, Psalm 84, is about cultivating this longing for home. It's about recognizing that our true home is with God, and then we want to find that home. We want to nurture that longing. In the current culture that we live in, there are enough things to numb us from this desire. (laughs) And my prayer this morning is to kind of reawaken this desire in all of us to to long to be in the presence of God with a confidence and a faith and a trust and a hope that everything we long for will be found there. So if you want to listen or if you want to turn with me to Psalm 84, we're going to read maybe a a famous psalm, but a very powerful psalm. (laughs) If I can manage the wind this morning, it's kind of windy. But I'm thankful for the wind because I know it feels good. Psalm 84, how lovely, just listen to the language, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, it faints for the courts of the Lord. And he's, he's not talking about legal courts, he's talking about the courtyards of our true home. Eugene Peterson in his 
translation, the message translates it this way. What a beautiful home, God. I've always longed to live in a place like this. I've always dreamed of a room in your house. That's where I want to be. My soul longs, yes, it faints, to be in the presence of the Lord. My heart, and I think it's interesting, the psalmist says, my flesh sing for joy. Sing to the living God. It's my flesh, there's an appetite for God. There's a desire, there's a, there's a yearning, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a longing, a physical desire. This is somebody who desperately wants to be in the presence of God. And I say this from time to time, a Christian is many things. First and foremost, a follower of Jesus, somebody who confesses and believes that Jesus is Savior and Lord. But, but another way of talking about a Christian is a Christian is somebody who wants to be one. A Christian is somebody who, I mean, Stu mentioned that well, the lyrics we sang and some of those songs are hard, to, even in the hard times, but I will a Christian is someone who says, I will follow Jesus. I want to. To whom would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And then these verses really kind of captured my imagination, verses 3 and 4. In fact, I titled my sermon this morning, Even the Sparrow. The psalmist says, even the sparrow finds a home. Even the sparrow. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my God and my King. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. The psalmist pictures the birds that make their nests in the temple eaves. These common birds have nests and raise their young near the altar of the Lord in the presence of God. And the thought of these lowly birds in such a glorious place overwhelms the psalmist and leads to an expression of awe and wonder and praise, even the sparrows. And certainly Jesus uses that kind of thinking. If God cares for the birds, how much more you and me, even the sparrows? Blessed are those who make their home in the presence of God. Because his presence is transformative. And I was thinking, I mean, it's just amazing how, how often in my prayer life I can be so me-focused, me-focused, focused on circumstances, what I have, what I don't have. And all the way through the psalm, the psalmist is just so locked in on God. He's not saying he wants to live in a bird nest. I was thinking about it. I mean, if we get a little too... But if you get really, really literal... I mean, I love animals and I love babies, but baby birds are ugly. I mean, there's not, if I see a nest, there's nothing about me that wants to crawl into a nest with baby birds. They just, it's not my thing. But that's not what the, the psalmist isn't like, well, it's not about what you have and what you don't have. It's just the birds are in the presence of God, even the sparrows. How much more us if we make our home in the very presence of God himself? Verses 5 through 7. The psalmist is going to kind of transition to thinking about, so we're on a pilgrimage, we're on a quest, we're on a journey, and, and the psalmist is imagining or thinking back to trips that he's, he or she has made on the way, he has made on the way to Jerusalem, to Zion. Zion is the way the Old Testament authors will talk about Jerusalem at its best, Jerusalem in its glory, Jerusalem in the presence of God with the Davidic king. The psalmist says, blessed are those whose strength is in God, whose strength is not in their and their, their power or their money or their reputation or their accomplishments 
or their, or their optimistic attitude, or their intelligence. No, their strength, their confidence, their hope is in God. They acknowledge, I can't control everything, but I, my hope is in God. And I'm on this quest, I'm on this journey to find my home in God. These people are blessed. And though they go through the Valley of Baca, just imagine journeying to a destination, but you're through a dry and, 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 and thirsty land. And as you go, it becomes a place of springs. God provides what you need. Early rain covers it with pools, and you go. I love this language. You go from strength to strength as you prepare to be in the presence of God. Prepare to be home. Strength to strength. Zion is the place where gladness and joy overtakes you, and so you're excited to get there. You go with sorrow and sighing, but it will flee from you because God will provide everything you need on the journey. And you don't grow weary. You don't go from strength to weariness. You go from strength to strength. And I was doing a little thinking about this. I mean, I just went on vacation. Some of you may travel for work, but many of us do a lot of our big trips because we're going on vacation. We're tourists. But the psalmist isn't describing a vacation or a trip for tourism. He's describing a quest, a pilgrimage. And you and I need to understand that on this journey, we are pilgrims. We are not tourists. I was listening to somebody else talk about this, but I thought this was helpful to think through. Tourists are impassive observers in things they don't really participate in. If you're a tourist on a trip, you just, you're kind of just observing. You're just taking things in. You're an impassive observer. If you're a tourist, suffering is out of the question. You don't go on vacation to suffer. That's not why you go. You want to be entertained, and you want it to be easy. And in fact, if anything isn't easy, you are going to be angry. That's a tourist. But Psalm 84 is inviting us into a pilgrimage, a quest, and you and I are pilgrims. And pilgrims know that it's their very participation in the journey that transforms them. That we have to go on the journey to become who we need to be so we're ready to present ourselves fully when we arrive at the destination. So we fit in in heaven when we get there, right? Pilgrims know that there will be suffering. Suffering is required. It's hard. It's a journey. But they embark upon a hard journey because there's a sacred purpose. They want to. They long for it. They are excited for the blessings that will come when they're refreshed with fellowship once they arrive home. Well, verses 8 and 9 are kind of a plea from the psalmist. In the background, the psalms do this. They're kind of general about the kind of tragedies that face. That way we can pray the psalms, and whatever we're going through, we can use the language for our tragedy. The psalm 8, we kind of get, verse 8, we get, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O living God, I know you're there. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Look upon our king. There are difficult times our country is facing right now. Bless us. Bless our leadership. We need you. There's tragedy. We call out to you, God. And then we get to these verses, verses 10 through 12, the end of the psalm. For a day in your courts, this is that longing, cultivating that desire, nourishing that yearning. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. 
For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord, who? The Lord. The Lord is the one who bestows favor and honor and grace upon his people. And we'll talk a little bit about these words. You might want to remember this, memorize this part of the psalm this week. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. What is God with no good thing? No good thing does he withhold. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts, who puts their faith, who finds their confidence and security in you. Again, returning to the message, Eugene Peterson translates these verses this way. One day God spent in your house beats thousands spent on Greek island beaches. I'd rather scrub floors in the house of my God than be honored as a guest in the palace of sin. All sunshine and sovereign is God, generous in gifts and glory. He does not scrimp with his traveling companions. The psalmist knows and sings about the superiority of God's presence, what it means to dwell in the house of God. The psalmist longs for God because God alone can give his people, people favor and honor, and he withholds no good thing. In fact, one of the authors I was reading said it this way, no good thing. It doesn't say that the Lord will not withhold many things that we want or that we think we ought to have or that will satisfy our ambitions. He will indeed withhold many of those things. But he will not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. It isn't automatic. It is, as Jesus says, you make your top priority God's kingdom and his way of life. You cultivate a desire to be in the presence of God because that's what heaven is. It's where Jesus is. You cultivate that. And then all these good things will be given to you as well, added on to that, as, Matthew, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. The author says, when I first began this, this journey, this quest, this pilgrimage to follow Jesus, I can recall the calming effect that this verse in the psalm had on me. I was a young man with the rich and bewildering possibilities of life stretching out before me. And I clung to this promise, no good thing will God withhold. Now, years later, I can say it has been absolutely true. There are many things I have badly wanted and not received. Many things I have prayed for that I have not been given. No doubt some of these were due to my repeated failure to walk uprightly. But I have been given the things that were good for me to have. And they've been given to me in abundance. Actually, there wouldn't have been space for many of the other things I wanted. <laughs> God will not withhold all that is necessary for rich, flourishing life. To take place. Or, as I like to say from time to time, in Christ, if your story hasn't finished well, it hasn't finished yet. That's what God is withholding no good things. In Christ, if your story isn't where you want it, it's not over yet. It hasn't finished yet. Many of the things that we have experienced in the last 16 months and are still experiencing, we didn't choose. I don't know any of you have come up to me and like, Jeff, I love this. I was praying for a pandemic and we got none of us asked for this. But here it is. And these times have been confusing and difficult and painful. And some of us would say downright awful. 
But what I want to tell you is that God is still doing something good in the midst. And I'm not trying to be a naive optimist. I'm just trying to be an honest pilgrim who's on a quest to get home. I'm not a tourist in this world. I'm a pilgrim. And I'm on a quest to find my true home. You and I both know that God does not always prevent bad things from happen, from happening. But we don't need to be afraid because no matter what happens, God is with us. And, and we'll, we'll talk about he's bringing heaven into our midst now. He's bringing our truest home to us. God is always at work. He's preparing a place for you and I. And no matter what happens, God is going to work it together for good. It's one of the things I love to think about. And what makes Jesus unique, anybody can take good things and work good out of them, right? Any artist, any photographer can take beautiful things and make a beautiful picture. (laughs) But it takes somebody who has supernaturalness, somebody other, somebody who's uniquely gifted. It takes Jesus to take bad things, to take ugly things and still make them beautiful. Still redeem them, still make it good, so that when you step back and you see the story finished, you say, it's all good. At this point, I didn't know how it could be good, but God, you are the master, and you truly do things I could have never imagined, and it's good, and I'm thankful. Our life is headed towards something. We are going home, and because God is at work and his grace is real, I can tell you it's going to be okay. Even though I can't make sense, and I know things are coming in the next couple weeks that none of us want to do again, right? But it's coming. But God's working good, and we're going to lean into him, and we're going to be pilgrims. Now, it was interesting. I I wanted, just in my prayer time, I I wanted to preach Psalm 84, and I wanted to end. I like when I'm in the Old Testament, when I can, I like to end in the Gospels. I like to point to Jesus. And I wanted to go to John chapter 14. We'll read those first three verses. (laughs) But it was fascinating to me. I I hadn't thought about the context of what precedes John 14. And so I want to kind of connect. I want to talk a little bit about John, and I'll connect the dots to Psalm 84. But John 13 through John 17, really famous part of Jesus' teachings, kind of the upper room discourse. Ultimately, what Jesus is doing is he's preparing his disciples. He knows he's going to be crucified and buried and and he's going to be leaving the disciples and he's trying to prepare them he's trying to prepare them for his leaving and and again if you think circumstantially the disciples don't want jesus to leave they're not asking him to leave they like things the way they are they've established a new home with jesus and they want it to stay the way it is so in john chapter 13 verse 34 something we talk about often jesus basically gives them one commandment You do this, you'll do everything else. Love one another, Jesus says. But again, we talk about how easily that word love is misunderstood or misdefined in our culture, so Jesus defines it. As I have loved you, you love one another. So what does love look like? Perfect love looks just like Jesus. Perfect grace and truth. As Jesus loved, we loved. And then Jesus goes on to say, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, Simon Peter is starting to understand, Jesus, something is going to change, and you're leaving. So in verse 36, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus says, well, I'm I'm going to go somewhere, and you can't follow me now, but you will follow me later. 
And Peter says at the end of chapter 13, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. And this is one of those, and, and we talk about this in our Discipleship Pathway Formed, which I will be doing again in the fall, but there's so many moving parts right now. I don't know what night of the week we're going to do this yet. But we talk a lot about this journey of self-awareness that Peter goes on. Peter thinks, I'll never deny you. I'll never betray you. I'll lay my life down for you. And maybe in the back of Jesus' mind, he knows, yeah, eventually, Peter, eventually when I've equipped you, when I've changed you, when I've made you who you're truly meant to be, then you really will lay your life down for me. But right now, who you are, and as you know yourself, you don't really know yourself. He says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter's, Peter's journey is one of, he's, he doesn't understand really, we talk a lot about it, how, how, much, how much the discipleship journey involves knowing who Jesus is, and knowing who we are. And you imagine being one of the other disciples. First of all, Peter hears that, and he's like, what? I mean, that, that had to be crushing to hear Jesus say. And then the other disciples hear that, and they're probably thinking, what? We can't even trust, we can't even trust Peter? <laughs> I mean, how are we going to And of course, they're all going to betray and run away. I, I was thinking about this. So much of what we've, many of us have had to deal with, I've heard again and again from people inside our church and outside of our church. How many of our relationships have changed? How many family members who used to be our closest cousin or sibling or aunt or uncle or grandparent, now they're not talking to you because of something that happened over the last 16 months and the stories that were written. And I've been trying to, I mean, I've, I've tried to navigate my own things along the way, but as a pastor, I've been doing a lot of trying to shepherd and pastor, pastorally counsel and point people to Jesus. And I, I find myself saying three things kind of over and over again, and maybe this is kind of the beginning of our journey as we talk about navigating these difficult relationships over the next few weeks. The first thing, the place to start, is always knowing who Jesus is, <laughs> that he's good, that he's not withholding any good thing. I mean, it, it is absolutely fundamental that you trust and believe <laughs> That Jesus is good and he's working good. Because it's true and it'll change. It'll, it'll allow you to love people as Jesus has loved you. If you don't start there with who Jesus is and what he's done for you, I don't think you have enough willpower to love the people who are making life hard or painful or difficult. You have to acknowledge who Jesus is. The second thing, and we talk a lot about this, is then knowing who you are in light of who Jesus is. Knowing that your true self is calm, content, wise, and unafraid. That God loves you, that you are a child of God, that your value and significance, you don't have to prove yourself or please someone, that God already delights in who you are, even the sparrow. If you find yourself questioning your identity, even the sparrow, even the sparrow is invited into God's presence. How much more you and I? And then the third, and I think it's connected to the journey the disciples had to go on at this point. You and I need to learn to accept reality. And sometimes in some of these situations, you can't control other people. You can't manage relationships. You can't fix other people. And so sometimes the most righteous thing you can do is lament and grieve. 
but be honest. One surprising discovery I've made in the last 16 months is how much time and energy I spend avoiding being where I really am. Whether it's emotionally or spiritually, I spend so much time trying to pretend it's different than it really is. I refuse to accept that this is how it is right now. And I can't love people when I'm not operating in reality. You've got to remember that God is good. He's not withholding any good. That you are a child of God. That he loves you. That he's preparing a place for you, as we'll read in a second. But you've got to be honest. Maybe your relationship isn't what you want it to be. You just, you just gotta, you gotta accept it <laughs> or you'll never be free to love the person where they are and you won't give yourself grace to be where you are struggling through the pain and the confusion. You and I are pilgrims on our way to Zion. We're not tourists. So we have to learn how to be present with the pain. I say this all the time and if you've been trying to avoid, if you've been pretending that relationships aren't as bad as they've gotten, you know you can't go around your pain. You have to go through it. And so part of our discipleship journey is learning how to be present to Jesus with our pain so that we can have the John 20, 21 moment of restoration that Peter has. Yeah, he denies denies Jesus, but, but Jesus forgives him and restores him and changes him, and he's never the same again. Yes, the betrayal comes, but after that comes the transformation. We grieve, but we don't give up. And our hope is in Jesus. So this is what I was going to read. I just didn't know John 13 was so appropriate. So Jesus' response to Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And this is what he says, but do not be troubled. He says to the other disciples, look, I know you can't trust each other as much as you thought you could. I know you can't even trust yourselves as as much as you thought you could, but you'll find that I've got this. Don't be anxious. Don't be troubled. What do you and I do? We long for our true home. He says, believe in God. And this is some of Jesus' self-revelation. Believe also in me, he says. Trust Jesus. He's trustworthy. You and I find so many other things we try to trust, and they never deliver on their promises, so we trust Jesus. And here's our hope. We can hold on to this. In my father's house are many rooms. Now, when he would have said that, people would have thought of the temple in Jerusalem, in Zion. But if you've been reading, if you read through the Gospels, you know, Jesus begins to say, well, there's a new temple. It's my body. And now the Holy Spirit, since Pentecost, has been poured out on all of God's people. So, so, so God's house is really, I mean, God's house is really heaven, <laughs> And what Jesus began inaugurating the kingdom of God is bringing heaven to earth. Jesus, in a sense, is saying, my father's house is where I am. That's where heaven, that's, that, that's the way he talks about it in the gospel of John. Where I am is where heaven is. That's my, that's, and that's my father's house. That's your true home. Jesus says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to go prepare a place for you? I have you in mind. When I go to the cross, when I go to the grave, I have you in mind. And receive this, cross you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. That is good news. 
You and I can't always see the way ahead, but we need to know not only that there is indeed a way into the unknown future, but that we will be able to find it. Jesus is going to go on. If you don't know where to look, in the next few verses, Jesus is going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We keep our eyes locked on Jesus. He is our way into our truest home. Along the way, he will teach us to be calm. He will teach us to be content. He will teach us to be wise. He will teach us to be unafraid. Jesus here is describing his exit as delightfully a making of reservations and of loving preparations for his family, you and I, his children. And then he goes beyond that and he promises to provide our transportation home. And then, even more strikingly, he promises to personally go with each one of us as we journey to our true home. So let me tie this all together, and then Matt's going to bless us with a song. But I know things continue to be hard. Things continue to be frustrating. Things can continue to be confusing. I know there's still a lot of relational tension, a lot of unfinished business, if you will. But at this point in the journey, as far as I want to go, is I want to invite you to allow the hard things that we're in, 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 in encountering to continue to trigger the longing for home, our desire to be in the presence of God where we can be in our old clothes and still be comfortable. I want us to begin to be present with Jesus in our pain to grieve, to lament, but not give up on people. We want to love people as Jesus has loved us, and Jesus has been infinitely patient with us. So we learn from Jesus how to love like Jesus. And we hold firm to his promises of goodness that he will not withhold. You might right now be able to recognize what doesn't feel like home, and you might be able to recognize things you need, things that are good. Well, he will supply it. Jesus will not withhold anything good because Jesus says, I want you with me. <laughs> Jesus says, where I am, there you may also be. Well, I'm going to invite Matt up. I'm going to pray for us. But Matt wrote a song about being in the presence of God. It's kind of cool. In our discipleship pathway, we talk about sitting with Jesus. So this song that Matt wrote came out of his sitting with Jesus. So Matt's going to sing this song. I just want you to listen to the lyrics. Just cultivate, nourish that desire to go, to, to be at home with Jesus now. Jesus is bringing home to us in his presence, even the sparrows. And then when Matt's done, he'll invite you and we'll sing one last song before we're finished. So let me pray. Jesus, would you continue to cultivate our desire to long. There's so many things that numb our desires. Would we long to be in your presence? Would we believe in your goodness? Would we be willing to sit with you in our pain so that we can be forever changed? We can know resurrection life. We can be born again. We know that life comes from your presence. Would you cultivate that longing in us this morning? In your name we pray, amen.